Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We've got my good friend and colleague from CNN and mentor David Axelrod with us on today's episode. But before I get to our conversation with David, I wanted to talk about the recent news that surfaced last week that NBA Hall of Famer and NBA on TNT commentator Shaquille O'Neal voted for the first time this election. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who was initially shocked by the news because the Shaq that I see as successful entrepreneur, a multimillionaire, someone with a doctorate in education, and someone who once said they would run for sheriff of Henry County, Georgia, doesn't fit the profile in my head of an infrequent voter. But let's put this news into context. During the 2012 election, 66% of eligible black Americans cast a ballot with that number declining to 59% in 2016. So even with Barack Obama on the ballot, about one-third of black folks we know were just like Shaq and didn't vote. And about 40% of those of us that were eligible to vote didn't vote every single year. And the rate of folks who don't vote is far higher in state and local elections in off years when there's no big election like a presidential election. Before Chris Paul got NBA players engaged, almost 80%, 80, 80%, 80% of NBA players were not registered to vote. Colin Kaepernick told us a long time ago he wasn't even registered to vote. So Shaq is among the millions of Americans who don't vote or who are infrequent voters. These are voters that if they turn out, can turn any election. But for whatever reason, they often choose the couch every election. And it's because infrequent voters are so important in Democratic politics in particular that I thought a lot of the responses to Shaq were head scratchers. While I understand the frustration, we'd all be better served by understanding why someone like Shaq and why so many other Americans choose not to vote, especially younger people and black and brown people who have so much at stake in every election. When you ask most people, why they don't vote, they'll often tell you that they don't feel like they have enough information on the issues or the candidates. They don't know what the various offices actually do, or they don't think their votes count or will change anything. These aren't new justifications. But when your president is a fascist and you have white supremacists seeking to kidnap governors, expanding the electorate enough to engage people like Shaquille O'Neal has to become every Democrat's ministry moving forward. That means we've got to make sure that our friends and family have quality information around voting in elections and what's at stake for our communities, especially for our black voters. That's why I love Get Your Booty to the Polls, because they make issues that affect us plain and they connect the dots between voting and why it matters. For candidates, that means actually speaking to what matters for infrequent voters and engaging them. And for everyone else, Let's not assume that the people around us know what we know or know why elections matter. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is I know folks in Bamberg and Denmark and Orangeburg, South Carolina, and in places that traditional news outlets don't reach, often look to me to help them understand what's going on. And this show is one way that people can understand what's going on in terms they understand. Every single one of us can play this role within our village. And had someone done that with Shaq, maybe he would have been voting. So I want to make sure that everybody listening to this show has absolutely everything they need to vote. Make sure you have a plan. Make sure you encourage others. Make sure you know how you're going to vote. Make sure you've got everything you need. If not, go to BallotReady.org. Did you know you can vote before November 3rd in most states? See, this is what I'm talking about, encouraging others and educating them. Check if you can mail in your ballot. But for me and everyone listening, I encourage you all to go to BallotReady.org and see if you can actually show up with your mask on. Understand what's on your ballot. Go to BallotReady.org to get that info. Then we can help everyone, including our friends like Shaquille O'Neal. Vote shaming won't win us any elections. Meeting people where they are and creating a politics that does That's how we win and how we grow the electorate. So Shaq, brother, we appreciate your honesty. And I hope that this is the first election of many for you and lots of people like you for the first time will cast a ballot, will cast a vote in the most important election of our lifetimes. Now on to our show with my good friend, David Axelrod. 
This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So ladies and gentlemen, today on the Bakari Sellers Podcast, we have somebody who I truly cherish and appreciate their friendship, my good friend, uh, David Axelrod. What's going on? Welcome. Thank you. Oh, you know, just the great pageant of democracy. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Now, obviously... Uh, people know the the David Axelrod story after you met Barack Obama, but you're mm-hmm. a journalist by training. Walk us through the arc of your career from your start at the Chicago Tribune to well, 2007 when you worked with the Obama campaign. Yeah, I'll give you a little prelude because uh, there needs to be a little, as we say in the business, pre-roll uh, for that because um, actually I, my, the story begins in New York City where I'm sitting right now when I was five years old. John F. Kennedy came to campaign. You'll appreciate this, Bakari. It was 12 days before the 1960 election. He was a Democrat and he was campaigning for votes in New York City because New York was a swing state then. And uh, he came to Stuyvesant Town, which was this housing development where that was built for returning war veterans where I lived and my mom was at work. And the uh, wonderful woman who took care of me when my mom was at work, because my parents were separated, took me, her name was Jessie Berry. She took me out to see John F. Kennedy, put me on a mailbox. I was completely captivated by this scene, you know, this, his voice booming off the building and everybody paying rapt attention. And I just got deeply, deeply interested in politics and worked on campaign. Nine years old, I'm handing out leaflets for Bobby Kennedy and, I mean, the whole nine yards. And I went off to Chicago, to University of Chicago, because I thought it was a great political town, last of the big city machines. They just had the big Democrat convention there that was tumultuous. And there was actually a budding black independent political movement around Hyde Park where the university was. And I thought this would be a cool thing to study and be a part of. But when I got to the University of Chicago, what I found was nobody wanted to talk about anything that happened before, like after the year 1800. So, uh, <laughs> so I became, I started writing because I wanted to satisfy my interest in politics. And I started freelancing, uh, wrote a column for a paper called the Hyde Park Herald about politics and ended up uh, getting an internship and then a job at the Chicago Tribune and in a really interesting period in Chicago. First, uh, a woman named Jane Byrne toppled the Democratic machine there and got elected mayor, running as a reformer. Well, wasn't that because of the way that the mayor handled a snowstorm? Yes, and it, and, and it has a lot to do with race. Uh, the mayor was a guy named Mike Belandic. He was appointed to succeed Mayor Daley when Mayor Daley died, the first Mayor Daley. And there was a snowstorm. It snowed for like 40 days and nights before the election. And public transit was snarled. The city was snarled. And he made the decision to shut down all the stops between downtown Chicago and the suburbs. And, and most of the African-American community was served by those stops. And there was a great rebellion. And Byrne got uh, the, the, the African-American vote was usually a loyal vote for the Democratic organization. 
but it had become more and more independent. And Byrne got half the African-American vote. Uh, I'm sorry, she beat him two to one among African-Americans, and that's why she got elected mayor. And then she promptly betrayed the community in many different ways. And that gave rise to Harold Washington, who yes. ran for mayor in 1983. And I covered that election as a city hall bureau chief. It was one of the most inspiring elections that I'd ever seen then or since, uh, because the African-American community was uh, just taken for granted politically by the Democratic machine. And and there was a, an assumption that there wouldn't be the kind of turnout that Washington needed. He wouldn't get the percentage he needed. And it seemed like every every African-American in Chicago was wearing this sunrise blue Harold Washington button. Uh, in fact, I took the Harold Washington button and I gave it to my graphic designer when Barack Obama ran for president. And I said, I want, I want a concept like this. I want something and that, that is that where the little the rise sun, came? Yes, yeah, that was, that was, it wasn't, it didn't look like that, but it had the same message, which was a sunrise, that this was a new day. And uh, it was, and it was an incredible election. And I stayed at the Tribune for a couple of years and then um, got frustrated with where I saw journalism going, the kind of corporatization of journalism. Could you and, be in journalism today? I mean, I know that you're in it. We all are in it together at CNN. But could you be a, I mean, could you could you be a, a beat reporter today? Well, or Yeah, well, I mean, I, I love journalism. I revere journalism. I think of myself as a journalist. Uh, as much as anything, you know, I grew up in the newsroom at the Chicago Tribune. I got there when I was 21 years old. My dad had died while uh, I was in college, and uh, I was, um, and I, and I really was. A whole bunch of people took me under their wing and taught me about life as well as journalism and so many things. And I love and revere journalism. I mean, you know, yeah, I could, I could be. You know, there are times when I listen, man, when I'm driving along and I see a plane and it looks like it's going down, I still feel like I have to veer in that direction and call the story. in. <laughs> so you have those instincts. They're ingrained in you. Uh, and I still have them. And I think there's a lot of great journalism that's being done. I don't think people, you know, this democracy of ours, which is being tested in so many different ways, is in part reliant on the courage and the persistence of journalists who are willing to shine lights in dark corners. And, you know, the president has tried to extinguish those lights, but they persist. And that's one of the reasons uh, why we know as much as we know about what's going on within this administration. And, you know, beyond that, the telling of stories in, in our community and in our society it's, it's really wonderful work. It's hard work. And if you're working at a local news, like my old newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, is, is depleted. And a mm -hmm. lot of towns have lost their newspapers and yeah. lost their And that is a real tragedy, not just a tragedy, but it's a real threat to our country. Because you don't need to just shine bright lights in Washington. You need to shine, shine them in every city hall, every state house, and in every community. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big supporter of independent journalism and all these efforts to try and revitalize local journalism. Isn't it true that you almost set out the 2008 campaign because you had prior relationships with Obama, yeah, Clinton, totally. and Edwards? Well, here's how what happened. I mean, I remember sitting in uh, the Pfister Hotel in 2004 uh, with Dan Baltz, one of the truly great journalists of Correct. our time. And uh, Dan was covering the primary up there. And I, I had been working for John Edwards which is a whole nother story. But at the same time, I was working for Barack Obama, who was running for, for the U.S. Senate in Illinois. And that was a extraordinary campaign. I mean, we were like a third tier candidate when we started and he just took the state by storm. And I told Balt, I'm working for a guy in Illinois who you're going to hear from because he's going to be a big thing nationally. And he said, who is this? I said, Barack Obama. Barack Obama. I never heard that name. So we get elected to the Senate. He gets elected to the Senate. And there was no intention to run in 2008. It was not the plan to run for office in 2008. He, in fact, we wanted to kind of calm that talk down because we didn't want people in Illinois to think that that was just a way station for him. But events uh, uh, really propelled him 
uh, forward. But even in the summer of 2006, yeah, I had worked. Tom Vilsack was running at one point. Chris Dodd was running. I'd worked Bill for Bill Richardson. Hil- I'd, I mean, worked for, I'd worked for Hillary. I'd worked for Edwards. And Patty Solis Doyle, who you know, uh, who was running Hillary's campaign, old friend of mine from Chicago, came to see me and asked if I would participate. I had worked for Hillary for the Senate in 2000 uh, on the DSCC side when you could coordinate. And I told Patty, you know, I've got all these friends in this race, and the only way that I'm going to get involved in this campaign is if Barack Obama runs, because he's my very, you know, he's, he's, he's a very close friend. I really believe in the guy, and I don't think I could turn that down. And he's from Illinois. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen, Patty. This, and I really believed it. But, you know, things moved very quickly, and by the end of 2006, he was in. And there was never a doubt in my mind that if Barack ran, that I would work for him, because I... We share so many beliefs about what democracy is all about and what politics is all about. And what I learned from my experience with Edwards, which was not a happy experience, was if you're going to work for somebody in a presidential campaign at a very high level, make sure that you have a close enough relationship with them that it can withstand the kind of pressures of a campaign and that the bonds of trust are such that they won't be broken when things get rough. Are you still friends with uh, Senator Edwards today? You know, I haven't really spoken with him. He he was very kind to me. I have nothing to say. You know, I never never had a bad experience with him. The the campaign itself uh, was kind of a shit show. And, you know, I just didn't have the kind of relationship with him that you should. And I was warned going in, don't sign up with anybody unless you... Mike Murphy, who I now do a podcast with, who who is an old friend of mine on the Republican side and did McCain's uh, first campaign, he said, you know, we were talking about it. And he said, don't, don't, you know, go spend a few days with a guy. Don't... But I was eager to get in. I kind of saw a lane for a populist candidate in that race. I thought he could fill that lane. You know, and, and, and he was very talented. Uh, but... You know, it was striking to work for Obama and Edwards at the same time because Obama would want to drill three or four levels deep, you know, on stuff. And uh, Edwards was not that way. He just, you know, he the cliff notes were adequate. And my um, um, my final two choices in 2008, when I was hanging out with Steve Hildebrand and Anton Gunn, and even yourself occasionally, were John Edwards and Barack Obama because John yeah. Edwards was a South Carolina boy and he yes. he had his he had his campaign headquarters in the Ninth Ward. He was talking about poverty. He it, he yeah, had this absolutely. He had this veneer. I think it all only was a veneer, but he had this thing that forward facing was uh, was enticing. Yes, so he was. No, listen. He he like I said, he was very very talented. But but you know, look, I've been friends with Barack Obama since he was a returning law student. Uh, from Harvard. And, you know, from the first time that I sat down with him, I knew there was something special about him because he, you know, you you have to remember when he came back to Chicago to lead a voter registration drive and work in a, a small civil rights and labor rights law firm, he had been the president of the Harvard Law Review. Mm-hmm. And that was national news. Uh, first African-American president of the Harvard Law Review. He could have, as you can imagine, Bakari, he could have written his ticket at any law firm in any corporation in America and set himself up for life. You know, he could have clerked for a Supreme Court justice. There are so many things he could have done, but he came back to serve. And uh, when he talked to me about his plans, he said, you know, I'd really... uh, I think I, I want to serve in public office. He's, you know, I, I mean, I want to be about about something larger than myself. And um, you know, the world of politics divides into two categories. The the first are people who run for office because they want to be something, and then there are people who run for office because they want to do something. And he plainly was that kind of guy. Compare, and, uh, and I, I've never heard you answer this question. And I, in pre- preparing for this, uh, my my producer Jared and I we. We listened to a lot. I've been on the the Axe Files twice. Thank you for that. Most recently on, yes. on my book tour. Yeah, um, always good to have you. I've never heard you compare Harold Washington to Barack Obama. Well, one of my greatest regrets in life is that Harold Washington and Barack Obama 
didn't get to know each other. You know, Barack Obama's only encounter with Harold Washington when, was when he was a community organizer and he had organized a protest uh, about some uh, issue, in, city issue in the, on the South Side, and Harold came to appear. Uh, so they never knew each other. I suspect they would have been incredibly close friends because yeah. uh, Harold Washington was, you know, in my view, right at the top of the list with Obama in terms of uh, his intellect, his personality, his, his uh, sense, his, his, you know, he, he was, I, I wish you could have known him. Yeah. Uh, he, he was so, uh, such an inspiring, powerful guy. And, you know, the thing is that he grew up in the Democratic machine. They were different. Harold came, he was a, he was a child of the Democratic organization. His father was a precinct captain. Harold became a precinct captain when he was very young. And he increasingly grew angry about the indignities that the uh, Democratic organization inflicted on those who were, you know, you could, that you could advance and you could get a good job and you could get elected to office as he was. All you had to do was surrender your independence. <laughs> and, and Harold did not want to do that, especially on issues involving race. And he just became increasingly rebellious and defiant in a beautiful way. Uh, and, you know, finally, he, he ran uh, against uh, Mayor Daley, uh, not Mayor Daley, he ran in a, in a special election after Daley died against that guy who, who ultimately lost to Jane Byrne. And he ran for Congress. I, I don't mean to get too much in the weeds, but I love these stories, man. No, uh, Her, uh, Ralph Metcalf was a congressman from Chicago. He also was an Olympic, right? He was in the 36 Olympics with Jesse Owens. And Ralph came back to Chicago and he became an alderman and ultimately a congressman. And he was one of Daley's, Mayor Daley's top lieutenants. And Bakari, in, in 1971 or two, he broke with the mayor because two friends of his were uh, brutalized by police in Chicago. And he, he demanded a review board to review police tactics in Chicago Daily considered this openly defiant. Harold ended up splitting uh, with Daly, and that became a huge war for where the black community would go. And Harold was with Metcalf, and when Metcalf died, Harold beat the machine for his seat. So Harold was a force. And I went to see Harold in 1983, I, or 1980, summer of 82, I was a, the bureau chief, CL bureau chief for the Tribune. And I went to see him about the 83 race. And I said, I met him at his congressional office, which was right by the Dan Ryan Expressway there. And he, you know, he came in and he sat down and he said, what do you want to talk about? I said, I want to talk about this mayor's race. And he said, can we go off the record? I said, sure. He said, do you know what it's like to be a congressman? And I said, I really don't. He said, he said, well, I'll tell you, he says, they treat you like a king and, you know, you can do a lot of good things. And you come and go as you please. And, and he says, Mayor, he says, that's a real job, man. He said, that, that, is a, that is a job. And he said, and you have to surrender everything. And he says, so why would I want to do that? He says, so here's what I'm going to do. He said, I feel like I have to respond to the community. And I'm going to tell him, if you register 80,000 people, new voters by Thanksgiving, and you raise half a million dollars for me, by Thanksgiving, and I think I can compete, then I will run. Because there had been like a community referendum, and he won like 3,000 to one or so, you know, it's just, <laughs> so uh, I, the next time I saw him was when he was announcing uh, after Thanksgiving, and he saw me in the press pool, and he pulled me aside, so you remember that conversation we had? I said, yeah, he said, they did it, man. <laughs> well, 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 I had no choice, but Let it ended yeah, go ahead. Let, let me ask you this. Tell me, because that that's a. It, I I was just thinking about the parallels of of kind of going against that establishment. Yeah. Uh, everybody has to have that moment. I may have that moment in the future. But were you with uh, Barack Obama when he got his ass kicked by Bobby Rush? I was. I, well, I was a friend of his. I didn't work on that campaign. Um, and how did he respond to that? Did he think he was going to win that race? And how did he respond? Well, to it? he obviously not, thought he was, was going to win close. when he got it. No, he lost by 30 <laughs> points. I always joke that he narrowly <laughs> lost by 30 points. He, you know, it was a, there were a lot of lessons in that for him. And um, yes, I think he thought he was going to win. And he, he literally, 
put everything he and Michelle had into that race. He was broke. He always tells a story about going to the Democrat convention after that race. And he got to the airport in L.A. and none, the rental car place wouldn't none of his credit cards worked because he had been so tapped out for the election. He put when he called me about running for the U.S. Senate in 2020 in 2004, he said this was in the summer of 2002. He said, I got one race left in me and I promised Michelle one or done and either I win or I don't and I go and I make a, a real living, you know. But this is it. This is my last chance. And he was deeply depressed after that. You know, Barack Obama had been very successful, you know, to that point. But I think he would tell you now, and I had this discussion with him on my podcast uh, at the end of his term. Uh, he would tell you that as un unwelcomed as it was, it was probably a really important experience for him. Because he, first of all, he learned some humility, and he also yeah. learned, you know, uh, he became a much better candidate, particularly in the African American community uh, after that. Uh, after that race, I want to tell you one other story about this, and then I know you got other stuff sure. on your yeah, yeah. plate. The night that we won the Senate primary there, and you know, we are there were seven candidates, and our hope was to get thirty-eight percent of the vote. We thought that's what we would need to win. And the numbers started coming in, and it was clear we were going to exceed that. And we ended up getting 53% of the vote. And the thing that was a remarkable This was is against that, Alan Keyes, right? No, this, well, no, this was in the primary. So this oh, was primary. against a, the sitting state controller, against another guy who had who spent $30 million of his own money, which was a lot of money. It's, it's a lot of money now. It was even more uh, than. There were a whole bunch of very— And they uh, had the guy who did some weird sex act stuff. Or something that like was that. also in the general. That's who Alan Keyes he replaced. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah, because the Republican Party in uh, Illinois had the the great inspiration that if Democrats nominated a, a a black guy, that they should import one of their own. And they went to Maryland and found Alan Keyes <laughs> and made him their uh, candidate. But uh, but the night of the primary, the northwest side of Chicago, we started winning ward after ward after ward. Now these were white ethnic wards. And in 1983, when Harold Washington ran, he got like 2% of the vote up there. And there was a very famous incident in which he went campaigning after he was a nominee. He went campaigning on the northwest side of Chicago. And Fritz Mondale went with him, Vice President Mondale, who was going to be the Democratic nominee for president. And they greeted crowds in front of this church, uh, this Catholic church uh, up there, that were so ugly that it made national news. It was mm. like it was like scenes from the old South. The night of the primary, uh, with twenty years later with Barack Obama, I looked up that precinct as we were waiting to go out, and he carried that precinct where that, that ugly crowd had met Harold Washington. I said to I said to Barack, you know, Harold's looking down on us tonight, and he's smiling right. because he he built something, and you you stood on his shoulders, and and things are changing, and you're an agent of that change. Somebody else, I mean, let, let's fast forward a little bit, kind of standing on those shoulders of people like Harold Washington and, and Julian Bond and Shirley Chisholm. I know you agree with my sentiment that she is one of the more talented people we have in American politics. Uh, whether or not she runs good campaigns or not is, a, is another story. We can air that out in another conversation. But Kamala Harris, tell me what you think about her debate performance this past week, uh, understanding the history of it, but also just give people your, you've been in, you've actually, and I want everybody to know, I, I blame David Axelrod. You've been a part of one of the worst presidential debate performances yeah, I was. up until, up until I admit last that, week. I freely admit that. <laughs> up until two weeks ago. I freely uh, admit that. Yes. So, you know, uh, you know about debate performances. And for those who don't know, I'm, I'm ref I was referring to uh, Mitt Romney versus Barack Obama won, where Mitt Romney performed uh, e extremely well. So tell me what you thought about Kamala Harris's debate performance uh, last week. You know, I was worried uh, for her going into that debate because uh, I thought expectations were very high for her. And they were low for Pence, who actually did very well in his debate against Tim Kaine four years ago. And uh, I thought that was a bit of a trap. I also worried because... You know, the reason she had this bally, who was less about the primary debates this year than the fact that people have seen her at these congressional hearings where she has been really effective and sometimes withering in her cross-examination of witnesses, which you would expect from someone who's been a prosecutor. But debates right. are something different. 
And for a woman and a woman of color, probably much more so. Uh, Tone, style, how you engage, all very important. I thought she did that very, very well. She was tough. She brought the case, but she didn't bring it like a prosecutor. Uh, And I thought that she was very effective. I also thought Pence, uh, and I said this on TV, he looked like a guy who had been hauled to the principal's office to explain what his buddy had done. And he didn't want to dime the buddy out. (laughs) And he just was so frustrated that he had to be there. But, you know, he did not... You know, we're used to Mike Pence as this kind of sunny, sort of faux Reagan-esque. He didn't look well either. No, he 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 didn't. And, you know, it it raises the question, Bakari, I don't want to start, you know, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, he was supposed to be in Indianapolis today to cast his uh, his early ballot, and they canceled the trip, and he went back to Washington, they said, to get rest after the— Debate. So, you know, I don't know what's going on with Pence. That's one of the problems with this administration is you don't ever know what's going on with anybody. And, you know, uh, things that you would take for granted in the past, you can't take for granted in terms of how much information they're about, they're willing to share. But I think Kamala Harris did very, very well in that debate. And she did well in a debate where the only way it was going to have a really big impact would be as if. She did poorly, and Pence had a great night. I think that was unlikely because Pence had such a bad case to make. Yeah. And he, you know, but, but I think she did very well. And more than anything, that was her sort of a baptism in, in, in front of a huge national audience. 65 million people. It was, more, it was the second most watched uh, vice presidential debate. Uh, I think it was 60 million people. Second most watched vice presidential debate in history. So I'm going to be in politic and say the— Actuarial odds are that she, that she could be the uh, nominee in two thousand and and, uh, and twenty four. You know, maybe vice, maybe uh, if Joe Biden wins that, he'll he'll run again at eighty two. But I think it's unlikely. And so for her, this major exposure to a big national audience was a, a watershed event. And I and think she that prepared, she did I mean, well. I, one of the things that you talked about earlier in comparing Barack Obama to John Edwards is sometimes Kamala gets a little overcooked and sometimes, because she knows the information so well, but she actually goes to that second and third level and wants to know everything. Yeah, you got to be careful. I mean, you know, there's, especially in debates. Correct. You know, and one of the things that happened in that debate in 2012 is that the president wanted and and we provided voluminous briefing, you know, thousands of pages. And then he'd come back with 50 pages of questions. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what this really is. We know the top 15 questions that you're likely to get. We just need to figure out what answers we got. And, and I, we know I know, what he's I know say. this. I know this story, but who who had to tell Barack Obama that he sucked that night? Because I, I don't, and when he walked off the stage, I'm assuming well, yeah. he thought he did well. He did. Well, I'll tell you, the prelude to that story was uh, the night before we had a run through. John Kerry was playing Mitt Romney and uh, it honestly didn't go well. And everybody says, X, go in and tell him, tell him that we need to keep working. So we get into the room, me, I think John Favreau was standing there and uh, I said, Obama said, well, that was solid. Uh huh. And I said, well, Honestly, not really. There's some stuff we really need to clean up before tomorrow. And he just exploded. And he never explodes, okay? And he never says the... Let me just say he used words that I had never heard before from him. Uh, and he burst out of that room. I turned to Favreau. So well, I think that went well, don't you? But, uh, but he just... His head wasn't in the right place uh, for that debate. And, you know, we, we, we level set it after that. And he was great in the next debate. But the history of presidents in those first debates are that they don't do well. And Trump didn't disrupt that, didn't disrupt that pattern. You know, I, I, I said the night of that first presidential debate that I think we just witnessed the end of the Trump presidency. And I believe that. And if you look at the polls since that debate, even before his illness and his bizarre behavior, I think that was the line of demarcation. If there's any chance for him, it was gone that night. Let me ask you this question. It looks like the president's COVID diagnosis is going to make this decision for us, but it doesn't look like there's going to be a debate next week. Um, right. I think Joe Biden has already they scheduled both scheduled something. something. Yeah, they both scheduled something else. 
I don't personally think that the vice president benefits from any more debates with Trump, but should he push for this final debate to make a closing argument to millions of Americans, or do you think he can make that closing America? Uh, I think closing, Biden's committed to he's committed to the debate on the twenty second. My guess is he will do the debate on the twenty second. Uh, you know, by I think the die will be even more cast by then. So the impact of that debate, I think, is 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 debatable. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think you know. I don't think he. It is. I don't think he should walk away. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Trump was the one who pulled out of. They offered a. Uh, they offered a virtual, virtual debate on the on the fifteenth, and Trump stupidly said no. He's the guy who needs the debate. If you're ten points behind, you got a debate. debate. Uh, the one thing I wouldn't do if I'm if I were Biden, and I think Biden uh, has said so. Uh, his campaign has already said this. I don't think he should add another debate to make up for the one that the oh, president yeah, no. missed. You don't, you know, president suggested a debate on the 29th. You're not going to debate four or five days before. Uh, the election, you're not going to suck your time up in preparing for it. And, and you know, why why do that? So, you know, I think Biden has, uh, has met the requirements here. And uh, this is Trump's problem. One thing on the, the VP debate, Bakari, uh, you know, because I don't want to be a complete homer, uh, but there are a couple of places where I thought I, I wish she had followed up more. The fact that Pence literally did not say one responsive word and answer the question about what their plan was or where their plan was for people with pre-existing conditions. I think that is something that can't be stressed enough. Uh, They have no plan. They've had five years to present a plan. They have no plan. And even that night, he asserted that they had a plan. But when he was asked what it was, where it was, when we were going to get it, he did not have one word uh, in response to that. And I think that says everything about what people can expect, you know, on healthcare. It's what we've seen already. I think that there were some shots that I and you and even Barack Obama would have taken on healthcare, on Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. um, on climate ch- climate change. <laughs> Mike Pence gave one of the more legendary debate answers about climate change. He said the climate is changing. Yes. Um, but I, I just, I think that going in, it was a strategy to practice some level of restraint. It, no, I understand. Yeah. And I think I, that's- I, I mean, but, I, I, don't, I don't think, listen, I don't think that it was a function of her not recognizing the opportunity. I, I could see that it was a strategic- a decision because trust me, she will bite your head off. I've been in rooms where she she has she has. Well, uh, you know, I don't have to trust you. I, I all I have to do is ask Bill Barr, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, and any Jeff number Sessions. of other people who have yeah. appeared uh, before <laughs> her in these committees. Um, I, I think they erred on the side of caution, and on the, in the main, I think that was the right thing. But there are a couple of places where, yeah, you just kind of see a big fat fastball coming down the middle. You want to turn on it and park it about three rows back in the <laughs> left field stands, you know. Look, y'all, these times have us going sideways and zigzag, and it's so difficult and hard out there. The economy and public health crisis, we all know these things going on. All you have to do is pick up the newspaper or watch the news. But we also know that for business owners, as an employer, you've got a light on your plate. Running your business, ensuring workplace safety, and so much more. So now is the time that you can leave hiring to someone else and you can find qualified candidates fast and easy at ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter makes hiring effective. It makes it quick with features like screening questions to filter candidates and a dashboard where you can review and rate your candidates ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80%, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter, get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, because the Bakari Sellers podcast is so dope, you get to try ZipRecruiter for free. My listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-K-A-R-I. ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important 
to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. When this airs, we'll be 22 days out from the election. Uh, you, you're a campaign guy. And campaign guys don't count their chickens before they right. before they hatch. But what is keeping you up at night about this election? For example, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply concerned about mail-in voting on this show. Uh, what I've done personally and what I've told people is to put a mask on and go vote in person early if you can. I didn't know that you could, as president of the United States, pick up post office boxes and mailboxes around the country. I didn't know how important the the postal service board was I, I didn't even know that you you guys and bernie sanders had a had a thing over the appointees to that uh and so that's what keeps me up at night mail-in voting what keeps you up at night about this race well first let me congratulate you because i know you're the future postmaster general so uh <laughs> that's exciting um look i uh I think this race is over in terms of the case. Like if every American who intends to vote votes and the votes are counted, Joe Biden's going to win. And as the president likes to say, by a lot. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, as I look at this, I'm just reading these polls. And I, you know, look, I was critical of, uh, of the vice president's campaign in the primaries at times uh, to the point that, you know, I'm sure they... They will tell you that and not happily. But I think they've they've really they've played the last six months really, really well. And I think more than anything else, Donald Trump has created this has been a historic act of political self-immolation that continues to this moment. But the fact that people are going to vote in greater numbers for Biden than Trump means nothing unless those votes are counted. Right. Uh, and that is a concern. And, you know, um, I, I, I read today that, uh, you know, they've got 50,000 poll watchers ready to go out uh, and so on. And, you know, the question is, where's the line between poll watching and, po and voter intimidation? Uh, and Let me interject right here real quick, David, because I, I, uh, when I was running for office in 2006, uh, there was a guy in our home precinct in the state house race in South Carolina who got out the truck and sat on the front of the truck in my home precinct with the shotgun. And I just have a feeling that there are going to be a lot of people who are crossing uh, that line into intimidation. There was also a new report that just came out from Pew that said that Biden leads 69-27 for people who plan to vote by mail, but Trump yes. leads 63-31 for people who plan to vote on election day. Well, that has that has two pro you know there are two implications of that. Uh, even on the Natch, even when things are completely on the up and up, mail-in ballots tend to get disqualified at much higher numbers. So there's a spoilage factor. Uh, with mail-in votes. And if one candidate is disproportionately reliant on mail-in votes in a close race, that can be meaningful. But also, it you know, election night is is going to be interesting because if 
the verdict is unclear and you're waiting on states that won't count ballots for days. And most of Biden's or a lot of Biden's voters in those states voted by mail on election night. Uh, Trump's numbers are going to look much better than they will at the end. And uh, so he will declare on the basis of incomplete returns that he has won. And, and every day after when the ballots come in and that lead erodes and Biden wins in a Michigan or a Wisconsin or a Pennsylvania, uh, Trump will use that as fodder, you know, for his uh, for his the election is rigged. Argument. When do you think we'll know? When do you think we'll know? Well, here's um, the thing. One of the things that I am encouraged by is that we, you know, two states in which uh, Biden is is fighting and actually has a potential to win are Florida and Ohio, both states that are uh, without which Donald Trump really can't win re-election. No, no Republican uh, w- would win without those states. I think on, in Florida's case, no Republican has won uh, without it since Calvin Coolidge. Uh, so if those states, which count their ballots that day, all the absentee ballots are counted uh, that day and included, the first numbers you'll see in both states, I think, are early absentee vote numbers. and yeah, absentee yeah. numbers. If, if, the, if Biden is winning those states, it, it will be over and everyone will know it's over. Let me play. Let me do this then, because this is something I wanted to do with you, because a lot of people listening uh, are not uh, they don't get the big CNN prep books that we get. And they don't also have the wealth of experience that you have. I want to run through some of the key swing states and I want your thoughts on uh, who you think will ultimately end up winning uh, those states next month, Biden or Trump. Uh, Michigan. I think Biden's going to win that state. Wisconsin. Yeah, I think Biden's going to win that state just based on the polling and the, and the and the word of mouth I hear. That was the state I thought that was going to be the most difficult. Uh, I thought Minnesota was going to be the most difficult. Minnesota, Minnesota I think, next. is done. I, I mean, I, I just don't see Minnesota as being uh, real uh, for for Trump. I, he's desperately searching for possibilities, and it was close last time. The last, but the polling averages are are you know more in the sort of six, seven, eight range, and that's true for Wisconsin. It's true. Uh, for Michigan, Pennsylvania, maybe a bit narrower, but I, you're getting I, ahead. You're getting ahead of my questions here. Sorry, I, 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 the honest to God truth is, I'm thinking about this shit incessantly. So, Nevada, uh, I think that uh, Biden will win Nevada. I think you know it is it, it will be narrower, perhaps, than the industrial uh, Midwest, but I think he will win there based he, I mean, on everything. Got, Biden's going to just destroy them in Clark County. And that's where the overwhelming majority of, of you just kind of win Clark County and hold on. I think that Texas is fool's goal, but am I am I um, wrong in that? Who no, wins that? I don't. I don't think so. I, I mean, I don't. I, yes, I think you're right, and that that's my feeling. I mean, Texas is clearly moving, and it's moving. You know, those suburban areas uh, are. You know, re, you know, and you're going to see it. I think in some of the congressional races, there'll be more pickups in the suburban areas in Texas. But I don't think Texas is at the point where it's going to tip now. I think it will. If the Republican Party keeps on the same path that it has been on, uh, you know, I think it will tip. And by the way, uh, I think there's a real chance that the Texas uh, House will, 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 will tip. Yes. They need nine seats. And I think they can they can do. And that's what a lot of people don't understand about Governor Abbott's uh, voter suppression strategy. He looked like Scott Walker and and Brian um, Kemp down in Georgia by taking away all of the the mail drop centers in these respective areas. Uh, But he's doing it to preserve his majority in the House. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, Ohio. Yeah, you know, I had Sherrod Brown on my podcast. I, I have a little podcast, too. The yeah, tell Axe the people. Files. It's <laughs> called The Axe Files. I, you're yeah, on, I, I, I always look at the number because you shame the rest of us podcasters because uh, it's like Axe Files number 437. Like, that's how many just episodes a, That's just a function you? of age. I'm, uh, yeah, I've done, I've done a, I don't know, 410 uh, of them. But uh, I talked to Sherrod Brown the other day, and, uh, you know, he, he was— he was pretty confident. The polling, you know, latest polling shows it about even, maybe a, a shade in Biden's favor. But the thing about Biden is he is a very strong candidate in the industrial Midwest. He, you know, his uh, his whole style, demeanor, his background, his history, you know, the Irish Catholic working class guy from the industrial heartland. 
it all works for him there. And, uh, you know, there's a reason, Bakari, why Donald Trump bought an impeachment trying to stop Joe Biden from becoming the nominee. And this is the reason. Uh, yeah. Biden is culturally inconvenient for Trump, and he's particularly That's a great word. strong. I love that. Culturally per- inconvenient. I love that. He's particularly strong in these uh, in these states. So, I think there's a fighting. Jared was he he expressed some confidence that Biden uh, would win that state. They've invested uh, three million in TV there. I think the thing to watch is how much are they going to put in going forward, and do they make a full throttled effort at the end? To win the state, but look, I think before you get there, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, Pennsylvania. I think uh, I think Biden will win, and he'll win because he's just blowing it out in the suburbs. But you know, another thing, Bakari, that's interesting to me. You know, the CNN poll the other day nationally is is being reflected in state polls as well. Trump is getting the Trump vote in among white non college men, but when you look at white non college women. Uh, he won them by 27 points against uh, Hillary Clinton. He is winning only by eight points yeah. uh, against Biden. So I think that he will, I think Biden will roll it up in the suburbs. And I think he will cut uh, Trump's margin in some of these uh, 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 other, you know, more working class um, areas. What I was going to say was, you know, when I look at the race, you know, I could I can come with, up with a conservative estimate where you're at like 280, 290. But if he were to, if he wins Ohio, I think that means he's rolling, and it could. He's above 330. He's above you guys. Oh, I think you know I can I can draw a scenario. I'm not predicting this, but I was playing with a map uh, last night. This is what I do with my free time. I was like, who and, does this uh, with their free time? You need and, some friends, David. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it was at, uh, and I could get it up to 374. Now that would include winning Georgia. So, uh, the, but, so let's add the, my final three states, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia. Yeah. Well, Florida, I think is going to be very, very close. It's and always it, very close. Florida's just always close. Yeah. I, I mean, now I do sound like a Homer. Um, you know, my my stomach tells me that uh, Trump will win narrowly because Florida is a heartbreaking state often. My head tells me just looking at stuff that I think Biden will uh, eke it out there, especially you can't be at 10 points nationally as Biden is now without getting the benefit in some of these states. And the other number that I would point you to is just senior citizens, of which there are many in Florida. Uh, In this in the CNN poll, Trump was losing by 21 points among seniors. There, too, a group that he carried by eight points uh, last time. If that is true, you know, I think it's going to be tough for him. Uh, in Florida. North Carolina, I think, is a, also a very, uh, is a, a coin toss. If I were to, you know, I don't have a strong, a good feeling, uh, as good a feeling about it. Uh, and I think it could go, uh, could go to Trump, uh, although I think it'll be very close. And the mystery to me is Georgia, and you may know more about it, uh, but that is it. Right now, it's a dead even race and and both sides are putting a lot of money into it i mean you know that is a uh, i mean that would be that's in my 374 uh, i got georgia I, I i view georgia and texas behind nevada and arizona in oh terms of i think i think now i live in arizona part-time and my i've said for many many months i think that uh biden will win Arizona, in part because Maricopa County, where like 60 percent of the vote comes from, is really one big suburb. And the suburbs are moving against Donald yeah. Trump. And then, there, you know, there's a large Hispanic vote. Uh, uh, you know, Biden will get uh, the better of that. Um, I, I think he's going to eke out a win uh, in Arizona. I think he's going to win in Nevada. I can't, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, Georgia would be a bonus. Texas would put him over 400 in my yeah, that's scenario. A, I don't think that's that. I, and I, it, would, I, it would crater the Democratic Party. Look, I you, only you have forgot you one. You forgot one. I mean, which is party. Uh, Iowa, which I think is another sleeper here. Do you think that we can get Iowa? I, do. I don't have I didn't have Iowa in my I do believe Greenfield can beat Ernst. Yeah. And I think but, I think that uh, Biden could squeak by. What about uh, if you say Iowa? Why not Alaska? 
Well, you're talking about the Senate seat or the— Well, I mean, the, the, I'm talking about Biden. I mean, it's, a, it's dead even out there in, in Alaska. Yeah. Well, that's true. I ought to add them in. Are there, are there suburbs in Alaska? I don't—I've never been to Alaska. Uh, are there suburbs? No, I think it's a different kind of vote. Uh, I'm, yes, there are sort of—I'm sure voters <laughs> who fit that profile. But uh, now you got me—now I'm going to—now I know what I'm going to do tonight. <laughs> let me ask you this before I let you go. I got to ask. I want to talk about, because on this show a lot, I'm a courts guy. That is, that's one of my biggest issues, one of my biggest political issues. I know that 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 sounds almost Republican light. It should be more of a Democratic issue, that, but it's not. So I want to talk to you briefly about the Obama years, the courts, and what the party needs to do. We all know about that Rahm Emanuel quote about the courts being a distraction, but Republicans, they don't approach it like that at all. Why, or is it fair to say that the courts weren't a big focus of the Obama White House? And if so, why weren't they a larger focus? I don't think they weren't a big focus. I think we were drinking from a fire hose. I was only there the first two years. When I got there, you know, the country was teetering on the brink of a depression and we were involved in two wars and we were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act and deal with a bunch of other issues. And so I think that it was a priority, but maybe it should have been more of a priority. You know, I, and there, there's, I, I know people complain about the pace at which uh, judges were advanced. There also was a big effort on the part of McConnell to stand in the way of that, which is why uh, Reed did away with the, the uh, filibuster on judges. Um, but uh, no one should discount the importance of the courts. We, we've seen it. And, you know, we've seen it for good and bad uh, recently. And and everyone sh- should be out. You know, I believe Bakari, and I said this to uh, Sherrod Brown, and he didn't disagree with me. If Democrats had the opportunity to confirm a justice now and the shoe were on the other foot, I think Democrats would do it. What Democrats would not have done would have been to blockade a appointee to the Supreme Court for 400 days as McConnell did last time, which made the whole this whole process illegitimate. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to be discouraged and, and unhappy uh, about and, and 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 outraged about all of that. So I, I I do not. Barack Obama is a constitutional lawyer. I don't think he didn't think the courts were a priority. I do think that there were a lot of things going on at that time. So let me ask you about this gotcha question. Uh, that we have now with court packing. Yes. And, you know, uh, Kamala just flat out didn't answer the question last yeah, week. Yeah, that was noticeable. And, and, and noticeable. Biden didn't answer it yesterday. He was asked again, and he basically said, I'm not going to answer it. And, you know, there's a position to take that I will, I will, you know, my opinion will will emerge or, or flesh out more after I see if the Republicans really go through with this power grab uh, with Amy Coney Barrett. Maybe that's his position, but can you explain to me why we find ourselves in this pickle that doesn't make any sense? He's not going well, to lose any like real support. Well, here's what, I was asked about this this morning, actually, on, on, on CNN. Let me say what I think the reason is, and then I'll tell you what I, I think the answer, the answer that I w- would have given is. I think it is, uh, there is a, an under, understanding that there's a tremendous amount of energy among elements of, 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 our, of the Democratic base in favor of doing something about the court if uh, the Republicans move forward here, which they clearly are going to do. Nationally, the Washington Post polled on this, and it was a 32% issue. So you're caught between your base and the larger electorate. And I think, uh, and I'm not sure that Biden's made a decision on this at all. I think the 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 on, honest answer is, you know what? We're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got a, a deep economic crisis and enormous challenges that I got to deal with on day one. And that's what I'm addressing here. I will. I, I the reason I'm not going to answer that question is because I haven't yet landed on what I would do uh, on that. And I'm you know I'm going to focus on those things that are most. Uh, that are right in front of us all now. And I think people should want the president to do that. That's what I would do. I think it's a legitimate point, you know, and at least you're temporizing in a way that is, um, that, that, that makes sense to people. Yeah. But just to say, I'm not going to tell you because it's going to be an issue and I don't want it to be an issue. That may be honest, but it's not necessarily the best answer. <laughs> that is an honest answer. Yes. Like, I don't want to, I, I know Some, what my answer is. I just I don't, mean, I just don't I, sometimes honesty is not the best policy when you're campaigning, you know. 
So if I if I'm running for president of the United States today, you're, you're my getting ahead of advisor. yourself. I think that may happen someday, but you're <laughs> you're getting ahead of yourself here. Well, th- and, and hopefully that if if the Braves, I mean Braves, I'm a Braves fan. If the Cubs aren't on a winning streak, I can, or you're not the GM of the Braves of the Cubs, <laughs> I can I can uh, drag you out to work on my race. If I were to tell you that, look, David, I want to go out and I want to expand the Supreme Court, add more courts, more judges to the lower court because we haven't done it since Jimmy Carter. I want to make D.C. and Puerto Rico states when we have the House and the Senate. How, would you tell me I'm crazy? Would you tell me that's a power grab? Would you tell me that's anti-democratic? Or would you say, go for it? You mean right now, if you're running right now? Right now. In this environment? Yeah. Here's what I think. And you're going to say you're, a, you know, you're an old hack. But I'm looking at this race, and Joe Biden has control of this race. And he has control of this race because on the things that are driving people's votes— on the pandemic, on economic equity, you know, and and fairness and and all of that, uh, and on fundamental decency, which I think is really what's driving this. You know, I've got control of this race, and I don't need to introduce, and I don't want to introduce any other issues uh, that might change the dialogue or give anything to the other side uh, to shoot at. There's no need to do that. That would be my answer. And, I, you know, I know the counterargument, which is those, those issues that you raise are issues that are jet fuel for some important bases of the Democratic Party. I understand that. But you have to make these, ba- you know, you have, you have to balance off all of the equities here. You got to win first, right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think all of those are worthy of, uh, of you know, real serious consideration. Um, I mean, it's out. What you know, it's outrageous that the people in District of Columbia are not fully represented as they should be. It's outrageous. You know, the same for Puerto Rico. Although Puerto Rico has voted a few times on it and has not chosen uh, that that route, I, I quite I guarantee you that when and they may have had some advisory uh, referendum. I don't think anybody in D.C. would object to having full representation in the United States Congress. Um, so, would, you know, I think these things you, should, should would, come Would this up. be something you thought we could do in January after we have an election? Would these be policy initiatives? I think that they, they may well be. They may should. Maybe they should be. Yes, I think they, they should be. It's a question of sequencing because, you know, I, having lived in through a, a very fraught time in the White House and understanding how narrow the legislative pipeline is, you really need to make some flinty-eyed judgments about what you could do first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. Uh, that doesn't mean you should get it done, but make sure that you are um, that you are doing the things that you you know. And right, when he arrives, I think we're still going to be in the throes of this pandemic. Even if we have a vaccine, we're still going to have economic misery. And if the Congress doesn't act on a stimulus, and I suspect you know. Chair Brown said yes uh, the other day, and I think he may be right. That McConnell may want to be do may be doing what he did with Obama, and and kind of we're not going to help you. You do it yourself. He knows that Biden's probably going to be president now. Let Biden handle it. Maybe his thought, you know, a two three trillion dollar spending plan. Uh, there are a lot of things that have to get done. So, you know, are you if you're asking me, these should be day one priorities? I would say no. If you're asking me, should they be priorities? Should they be uh, part of the mix? I think the answer is yes, uh, and they should be seriously pursued. A last question to you, Senate races. What Senate races should people be given to watching out for? What are you watching out for? I know you stay up at night thinking about this shit, so tell me what you... Well, I think, look, I think there are four that are in one category A of uh, most likely Democratic pickups, and that's Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina and Maine, with North Carolina being the most tenuous, maybe, of the four. Democrats, you know, I'd love to see Doug Jones win. He's a splendid guy. I don't think that's likely. So, I think Doug Jones is your next attorney general of the United States of America. That's yeah, my personal opinion. Yeah, well, he may well be, and he'd be well qualified for that job. And he's got, he had a splendid track record uh, as a U.S. attorney, as you know. Um, so Democrats, you know, are going to need uh, f- at least four pickups here. And um, there are four there. But I also think there are plenty other places where they could. If Biden has the year that it looks like Biden's going to have, you know, I think Joni Ernst has big problems in, in Iowa. And I think there's a possibility of picking up, you know, one of the Georgia seats, uh, the uh, 
Alaska, there's a possibility of a pickup. Montana. In Alaska, Montana with, uh, with Bullock, Kansas is a possibility. So there are plenty of places in for- In South Denver. Carolina. How did you not say South Carolina? Well, I was saving it for last, uh, <laughs> No, well, you tell me. I know that, uh, I, you know, look, that looks like a dead even race to me. Um, yeah, the biggest, you know, the biggest problem that Jamie Harrison has, and I think that Jamie Harrison can win this race, um, that's a, that's a first of all that's a huge statement in yeah, itself. To yeah, say yeah, that, that absolutely. He, um, he's going to put up over fifty million this quarter. It's insane amount of money. <laughs> I he's, know. You know, he's it's like he's the doing great. sellers for lieutenant governor race. <laughs> I know. I raised seven hundred and eighty thousand dollars, and he's raising <laughs> he's raising that yeah, like before breakfast. <laughs> uh, so, but no, I you know it's hard because the third party candidate got out the race. Lindsey Graham got him out the race. It was a constitutional party candidate. Donald Trump is still polling at about fifty fifty one percent. And it's, you know, people will ask you this question. No one will really say it aloud, but I think that this is Jamie's target. You got to find a small, narrow swath, you know, maybe 30,000 Trump Harrison voters. I mean, I I don't know if they exist, but you got to go out there and find them. Well, I mean, you know, the question is whether there are enough Republicans. You know, in 1984, my first campaign out of journalism, I managed the campaign for Paul Simon, who got elected to the U.S. Senate, he defeated a three-term Republican incumbent, Charles Percy. And Percy had been elected as a moderate, and then he made a lurch rightward when Reagan, when he saw other moderate Republicans lose in primaries. And what happened was we ended up getting 25% of the self-professed conservatives because they didn't trust Percy. They felt that he wasn't he wasn't really on their side. And moderates were disillusioned because he had... Uh, bolted. So Lindsey Graham has some of that problem. I mean, he's there are a lot of disaffected Republicans. He is polling like nine points or something uh, below Trump in terms of his percentage of Republicans. You know, how that resolves itself will be, I think, important. I think, you know, Graham is the favorite, but uh, it's the one I'm going to be watching because if Jamie Harrison wins, you're looking at a, a, a night akin to 1980 when a lot of Democratic you know, legends like uh, Birch Bayh and George McGovern and others lost in the Reagan sweep. If Lindsey goes down, uh, yes, that will yeah. mean this is that kind of year. And you'll know by you'll know by eight thirty nine o'clock. So good. We want to know something by eight thirty and nine o'clock. So <laughs> we do because last time I was almost two or three shoots to the win because it looked like we were losing Florida uh, in twenty sixteen. So I knew it was going to be a long night. But anyway, David, thank you so much for coming Always on the Bakari Sellers podcast. You, my I love you, my brother. Uh, Enjoy New York. If you need anything, I'm always a phone call away. And shout out to the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) You are a great fellow there. Thank you. Thank you.